The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be exploring the day the music died, the day when a horror plane crash took the lives of promising musicians Buddy Holly, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper during the icy cold winter of 1959. In this episode, We'll follow all three musicians and their journey through life, from birth to that fateful cold and misty night at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, where the trio would ultimately meet their fate, cutting their brief but impactful careers short as we discuss the legacy they all left behind and the impact the tragedy had on others and the music industry as a whole. This is the story of Buddy Holly, The Big Bopper and Richie Valens. This is Lyrics of Their Life. We begin our story with the youngest of the three men, Richie Valens, who was just 17 years old when he died in the horrific plane crash. Richie Valens was born Richard Stephen Valenzuela on the 13th of May 1941 in Pacoima in the San Fernando Valley region of Los Angeles, California. His parents were Joseph Stephen Valenzuela and Concepcion or Concha Reyes, who had immigrated to the area from Mexico and were Native Americans. Nicknamed Richie at an early age, Richie also had an older brother named Bob Morales who had a different father, two younger sisters named Connie and Irma, and a younger brother named Mario Ramirez to Richie's father Joseph. Richie's father Joseph worked a number of jobs to keep the family afloat, including as a tree surgeon, miner, and a horse trainer, and together with his wife Concha, he worked briefly at an ammunition factory in Sorgas, near the San Fernando Valley. Richie was raised on traditional mariachi Mexican music and blues and jazz. His mother Concha loved him dearly and described him as, quote, He was a happy-go-lucky little boy, happy all the time, chubby and cute. While his mother often spoke Spanish and Richie could understand her, he predominantly spoke English and Spanglish. By at least the age of five, Richie was interested in making his own music and showed a strong passion for it very early on. His father soon encouraged him to take up the guitar and trumpet, which is exactly what he did. His uncle John even made him a toy guitar using a cigar box at just the age of five, which he loved and could hardly put down. Richie began learning to play the guitar on an old flamenco guitar and later even picked up the drums. At an early age, Richie's parents sadly separated and Richie went to live with his father. But when his father Joseph passed away, age 55, from diabetes, in 1952, at just the age of 10, Richie moved back with his mother, but it was often cramped, so he moved back and forth from his mother's to his uncle's and aunties. For most of Richie's life, he lived in near poverty, and times were harsh on him and his family, especially after his father passed away. 
They lived together as a big family, in small wooden houses, so there would often be hardly any room for them at all. This meant that Richie would sometimes sleep underneath the house, in the dirt, where they scooped out beds for themselves by digging holes. But despite these harsh times, his family life was very close and loving, as they would all gather around the front porch and sing Mexican songs together. In Richie's pastime, he especially loved watching singing cowboys on TV and wanted to be just like them. Over time, Richie's guitar ended up having just two strings and his mother just simply couldn't afford to buy him some more. But luckily for Richie at the time, he met his neighbour, who was a musician named William Jones Sr., who lived across from Richie's auntie. William noticed Richie was trying to play guitar with just the two strings, so he replaced the other four missing strings for him, showed him how to properly tune a guitar, and began showing him how to use the frets and play chords. Despite being a left-hander, Richie was determined to play his right-handed guitar properly and grow up to make money playing music to buy his mother a new home. So he taught himself how to play right-handed, which is actually an extremely difficult thing to do. From here on out, he was mostly self-taught and would often improvise when performing, switching up lyrics and riffs for a fresh take on his songs. When Richie reached junior high school, he was bullied from time to time for his Hispanic background, but most people in the area varied in culture, so they were generally accepted. Richie struggled with his schoolwork and was described as quiet, shy, respectful and well-liked. During school, he made himself a green and white electric guitar during a woodwork class made out of spare electrical parts and scrap lumber wood and began bringing his guitar along with him to school where he would play for his peers and began wooing the girls with his charm, voice and ability on guitar. That same guitar that he built in woodwork class would go on to be the same one he used to launch his solo career. During school, Richie soon earned the nickname as the Little Richie of San Fernando, as he was a Little Richard fan and would entertain his fellow students at lunchtime by playing his guitar for them. One day, however, during a school assembly at Parcoima Junior High during January 1957, a huge explosion was heard by students and teachers where two planes had collided and one of which landed in the school playground. Three of Richie's friends, who were coming in from a physical education class, were killed and 70 people were seriously injured. Luckily for Richie, he wasn't at school that day and was instead attending his grandfather's funeral. When Richie heard about the crash at his school claiming his friends' lives, Richie developed a fear of planes and flying and would often have horrible reoccurring nightmares of two planes colliding before killing him and his school friends and this would last for much of his remaining years. Richie would often be wary of planes and was puzzled to why or how they can fly in the sky and how they are considered safe. One day as he drove past the local airport with his auntie, he eerily said to her, you will never catch me in one of those little planes. At age 16, Richie was asked if he would like to join a band called the Silhouettes. Richie started off as a guitarist but soon took up the role of a lead vocalist when the former lead singer left the band. During October 1957, he performed for the first time with the band and he would perform with his band at school concerts and knew he was destined for great things. But as a teenager, Richie began rebelling and turned into a bit of a wild child, believed to have stemmed from both his father and grandfather's deaths and not having a strong father figure around. Richie then started hanging out with the wrong crowd and it became all too much for his mother to deal with, so he was then sent to live with his mother's cousin, Henry Felix. 
Henry was a disciplinary and sorted Richie out straight away. Richie then returned to live with his mother, being more respectful and well behaved. In May 1958, around the time Richie had just turned 16, he was scouted by Bob Keane, who was the owner and president of a small label called Delphi Records, which was based in Hollywood. Bob was told about Richie by one of his fellow students at San Fernando High School, named Doug Machia. Richie was a former celebrity at school and was renowned for his musical talents. Keane then went to see Richie play at a movie theatre, where he was impressed and invited Richie to come along to his home recording studio, located in the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles. The studio was set up in Keane's basement, and included state-of-the-art recording tools and instruments, and it was here where Richie auditioned to be signed to Keane's label. Impressing once again with just his guitar, voice, and a beat-up old amp, Richie signed his first and only record deal on the 27th of May, 1958, a career that would last just eight months before his untimely death. When deciding on Richie's stage name, Keane decided to stick with the name Richie instead of Richard, as it was more appealing, and he changed Richie's last name from Valenzuela to Valens for similar reasons, and to also take the Hispanic aspect out of his name, as at the time, there were no Hispanic or Latin artists that had broken onto the mainstream in the US, which had a lot to do with racism at the time, and many switching off due to this. Soon enough, Richie was in the studio recording his first tracks in Gold Star Studios, and at Bob's home studio with a backing band that consisted of Renee Hall, Carol Kay, and Earl Palmer. The first song Richie ever recorded was an original called Come On Let's Go, and a cover called Framed, during July 1958. Just weeks later, Come On Let's Go was released and was an instant success. The high-energy bopping tune managed to be a hit on radio and charted at number 42 in the US and 53 in Australia. Following his debut single's success, he would top this when he recorded and released a double single called Donna, which was a slow love ballad, and it was joined by the track La Bamba, which was a cover of an old traditional Mexican classic and folk tune. Donna would become Richie's biggest hit, which he wrote about his girlfriend at the time, Donna Ludwig. The two had met during high school and started dating in 1957 after a party the two attended. Donna managed to chart at number 2 in the US and 4 in Australia and 29 in the UK. The track La Bamba is traditionally sung in Spanish and tells the tale of an ambitious man looking to climb the ladder of success and to reach the heavens. It managed to reach number 22 in the US and 49 in the UK and together with Donna it sold over 1 million copies and went gold. Very quickly, Richie built himself a solid following, and the ladies absolutely adored his charming looks, smooth and fresh vocals, and swaying style dance moves as he rocks his guitar. Despite many at the time not being aware of Richie's heritage and background, he became the first Hispanic artist to break into the mainstream charts in the US, and was known as the first ever Chicano rock and roll musician. Richie travelled around performing at his high school and on a number of TV shows such as The Freed Show and American Bandstand as his career looked to only be headed upwards. His personality was described as kind and humble and he quickly earned the respect of many in the industry. Putting his fear of flying behind him, Richie boarded a small plane alongside Bob Keane to attend a TV appearance with Dick Clark. At the time it was snowing and the pair landed on a grass field where Richie said, if we live through this, we can make it anywhere. 
He then proceeded to open up to Keane about his nightmares where he had seen himself dying in a plane crash. Richie and Bob Keane had built a strong father and son life bond at this point and Richie would often open up and tell Bob everything. Richie one day told Bob of his dream to one day buy his mother a house for all she had done for him. Despite Richie's career taking off and sales of his tracks soaring, he wasn't yet receiving much of the royalties himself. Knowing how much Richie wanted this, Bob put a down payment on a house for Richie's mother, knowing that the money would soon be rolling in anyway and he could just repay him. Into the month of December 1958, Richie and Bob were in the studio recording Richie's debut album that was set for release the following year. Richie then performed for a second time on both The Freed Show and American Bandstand. Despite having a busy schedule, Richie would often go out of his way to perform at schools. Richie then made his film debut, starring in Go Johnny Go, singing All My Head. On January 19th, 1959, Richie's mother threw a party for all of his friends and family at his mother's new house as a going away party, as Richie was set to go on tour the very next day. Unfortunately for Donna, she wasn't allowed to go to the farewell party as her father said no, which she still regrets to this day as Richie played his songs into the night with his family. His family then drove him to the airport where he said his final goodbyes. This brought Richie to the date of January 21st, 1959, as Richie accepted to join the Winter Dance Party Tour, beginning in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, alongside Buddy Holly and the Crickets, J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper, Dion and the Belmonts, and Frankie Sardo, as they all crammed into a bus in the middle of a freezing cold winter, travelling to a new city every day to perform. While the other members of the plane crash were hesitant to initially leave to go on the winter tour, Richie, only aged 17, was the most excited as his friends and family were proud of him and were glad to see him go on his first major tour, making a name for himself, and they didn't think for one second anything bad would happen. Richie couldn't wait to meet all the stars on tour, and most importantly, Buddy Holly, who he idolised. This brings us to the second member of the famous but deadly crash, and he was arguably the most glorified from the accident. None other than Buddy Holly, who was only 22 when he died. Buddy Holly was born Charles Harden Holly on the 7th of September 1936 in Lubbock, Texas. His father was a tailor named Lawrence Odell Holly, and his mother was Ella Pauline Drake Holly. They had Welsh and English backgrounds, and even had Native American also. Together they had four children including Charles, with his elder siblings being Larry, Travis and Patricia Lou. Charles was the youngest by at least seven years and was nicknamed Buddy by his family very early on. Buddy was baptised and together with his family, they attended Tabernacle Baptist Church. As the Great Depression was in full motion, the Holly family moved around quite a bit within the Lubbock area and Buddy's father changed jobs a number of times. Times were tough but they managed to get by. The Holly family were very musical, and all members of the family could play an instrument or sing, apart from Buddy's father. Buddy's brothers were quite talented musicians and entered into talent contests with Buddy on violin. As Buddy didn't know how to play, his oldest brother Larry greased up the strings so he couldn't be heard and was just there for show. They ended up going on and winning a contest with Buddy and his greased up violin. 
Buddy was raised on folk, country and blues music such as Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers, Hank Snow, Bob Willis and the Carter family. When World War II came around, both Larry and Travis went away to serve, and upon their arrival back home, Larry brought a guitar back with him, which he received from a fellow soldier, while serving on a ship in the Pacific. Buddy thought the guitar looked amazing, and took an interest in it. As Buddy had been learning piano for around 9 months, he gave it up at age 11, as he saw an older boy from school playing the guitar, and singing along to it. Buddy thought it looked and sounded so cool, as a student had a group of admirers watching him. Buddy himself wanted this love and attention and decided to try and persuade his parents into purchasing a guitar for him. He started off by playing on a steel guitar but wasn't too fond of the sound and feel of it so he pushed for one more like his older brothers. His parents agreed and bought Buddy a secondhand guitar from a pawn shop and Buddy fell in love with it. With the help of his brother Travis teaching him how to play, Buddy would barely put down the guitar again. Then Travis and Larry both started their own tiling business and offered Buddy a job when he finishes school, but Buddy was far too inspired to chase music as his passion instead. During elementary school, Buddy met a boy named Bob Montgomery where the two became friends and began playing music together, performing covers of the Leuven Brothers and listened to a range of radio programs together, furthering Buddy's musical tastes. During high school, Buddy played alongside Sonny Curtis and Jerry Allison, Allison of which would remain close with Buddy and later join his band. In the meantime, Buddy alongside Jack Neal started a musical duo called Buddy and Jack, where together they performed in a local TV talent show. Soon Jack left and was replaced by Bob Montgomery, where Buddy and Bob played regularly on a Sunday night radio program on KDAV in 1953 and travelled around Lubok gigging. It was during this time that Buddy began listening to rhythm and blues, aka R&B music, on the radio and fusing this with early country and western to form his own unique sound and style. Buddy was labelled as a teen prodigy and was a great guitarist and highly skilled for someone his age. In 1955, Buddy graduated from high school and decided to focus on a career in music which was further consolidated after he saw Elvis Presley perform live in his hometown of Lubbock. Buddy thought Elvis was a legend, and being just a year older than Elvis inspired him. With Bob Montgomery by his side and Jerry Allison on drums, a huge break came for Buddy that year when he found himself opening three times for Elvis at both the Fair Park Coliseum and at the Cotton Club from April through to June of 1955. Holly's style around this time would once again change and incorporate rock and roll through the influence of Elvis Presley. When supporting Bill Halley and the Comets, Buddy impressed the audience once again and was scouted by Eddie Crandall. Crandall then persuaded his manager, Jim Denny, to sign him to Decca Records after receiving a demo tape from Dave Stone at KDVA Radio. When signing the contract, Holly's name was misspelled in the process with the E being absent from his surname. Buddy first got his iconic look with his black glasses around this time when he began having trouble seeing the audience when gigging, with an eye specialist claiming that Buddy had vision as bad as 20 to 800. For some time, Buddy wore uncomfortable contact lenses that could only be worn for an hour at a time. He wore contact lenses at first as he thought being a rock star and having glasses would make him a joke and wasn't seen as cool. At one particular gig, he dropped his guitar pick and couldn't see where it was. He crawled around looking for it and decided enough was enough 
and he went and bought himself a cool pair of glasses that would add to his act. The optometrist had made him a specific design that was bold and stood out, and of course they stuck, becoming part of his iconic look. Along with his band, he began wearing business suits which became their common attire during performances. Adding to his iconic look was his Fender Stratocaster guitar, with Buddy owning a total of five Stratocasters in his career. On January 26, 1956, at the age of 19, Buddy entered the recording studio for the very first time, working alongside producer Owen Bradley in Nashville. Buddy quickly became frustrated, however, at the initial lack of creative control he was allowed, with the producer seemingly making all of the decisions for him, such as selecting session musicians and how the songs would be arranged. During April of 1956, his debut single titled Blue Days, Black Nights, was released alongside the B-side, Love Me, which earned him enough interest that he became the support act for Farron Young on his tour. With his bandmates, they became known as Buddy Holly and the Two Tones, and later would be known as Buddy Holly and the Three Tunes. His follow-up single, titled Modern Don Juan, with You Are My One Desire as the B-side, however, was a commercial flop and failed to take off. Due to this, Decca Records decided against renewing their contract with Buddy and stated that he would not be legally allowed to record or release the same tracks with another label for at least the next five years. Buddy was furious at Decca Records, but decided to continue on his musical journey. He then contacted musician and producer Norman Petty from New Mexico after feeling inspired by two tracks he had produced called Party Doll by Buddy Knox and I'm Stickin' With You by Jimmy Bowen. With Petty as Buddy's producer and band members Jerry Allison on drums, Nicky Sullivan on rhythm guitar and Joe Malden on bass, Buddy Holly recorded a track called That'll Be The Day despite previously recording the track with Decca Records and going against their wishes. Buddy played lead guitar on the track while also providing his vocals. He loved the work of Petty so much on the track that he hired him as his manager. Petty then sent the track on a demo to Brunswick Records, located in New York City. They loved the record and decided it would be fine to release as is, without any modifications, and the track I'm looking for someone to love would act as the B-side. Brunswick Records were much more versatile and allowed Buddy more financial and creative control. As Buddy was technically still under contractual agreement with Decca Records, he decided to release That'll Be The Day under a new name and instead added his bandmates into the mix, calling themselves Buddy Holly and the Crickets, after Jerry Allison came up with the idea. It was later discovered that Brunswick Records were a subsidiary label under Decca Records, so it cleared Buddy, Petty and the Crickets of any legal wrongdoing. At this time, Buddy also signed a joint deal with another subsidiary label called Coral Records that allowed him to release solo work under his own name as well. On the 27th of March 1957, That'll Be The Day was released and Buddy Holly and the Crickets were booked to perform a run of shows to promote the track in New York, Baltimore and Washington. But at a number of shows at the New York Apollo Theatre, they were said to have disappointed the audience with their opening shows. But when adding a cover of the song Bo Diddley, they began to gain interest, and that'll be the day started climbing the charts. After a number of appearances on national US TV, they appeared on American Bandstand with Dick Clark, which catapulted the name Buddy Holly and the Crickets into the minds of Americans. 
as Petty planned to have Buddy record both a solo album and one with the Crickets. That'll be the day rose to number one in both the US and UK, and number two in Canada by November 1957. Buddy came up with the title of the song after attending a John Wayne film called The Searchers at the cinema with Jerry Allison. John Wayne stated in the film, that'll be the day, and it stuck in Allison's mind. Later that night, Buddy expressed that he would love to write a hit song when Allison replied, that'll be the day, imitating John Wayne, and the rest was history. Buddy was considered a star on the rise, and after a couple of underwhelming follow-up releases with Words of Love and Rock Around with Ollie McVie, Buddy released another great track titled Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue would eventually reach number three in the US, four in Canada, five in the Netherlands, and six in the UK. The track was originally titled Cindy Lou, after Buddy's niece, who was the daughter of his sister Patricia Lou, but Buddy changed the name to Peggy Sue, the name of Jerry Allison's former girlfriend, named Peggy Sue Garon, where the two had broken up briefly, and Jerry wanted her back. After persuading Buddy to change the name of the song, and aim it at Jerry's ex, he hoped it would bring her back to him. Garon was believed to be quite embarrassed when hearing the song for the first time live, at one of their gigs in Sacramento. But it certainly worked, at least for a long period of time, as the pair got back together and eloped in 1958. But unfortunately, they split nine years later. In 1958, Buddy wrote and recorded a sequel to their love story called Peggy Sue Got Married, but it remained unreleased until after his death. The B-side to Peggy Sue, titled Every Day, failed to chart, but lives on as one of Buddy's classics and instead went on to chart with John Denver and Don McLean when they covered the track. Buddy and the Crickets toured around the States off the back of the success of Peggy Sue and supported the likes of Chuck Berry, Fats Domino and Eddie Cochran. Due to a full-on touring schedule, rhythm guitarist Nicky Sullivan decided to quit the band, leaving them now a three-piece band. Buddy Holly and the Crickets would have more success with the track Oh Boy, which wasn't written by Buddy, other than a slight alteration in the lyrics, but included his vocals and instrumentals. The track reached number 3 in the UK, and 10 in the US, and when they performed it on the Ed Sullivan Show, Buddy and the Crickets landed in some hot water by the showrunners, who found the song too raunchy for the time. The B-side was titled Not Fade Away and was recognised as one of the first tracks to adopt the Bo Diddley sound, which the musician Bo Diddley adapted from West Africa. It later went on to be a hit for the Rolling Stones. As Buddy and the Crickets regrouped, after a string of success came their way, they all headed back to their hometowns to visit their families by plane. Buddy returned home to Lubbock to celebrate his 21st birthday with his family and girlfriend, Echo Maguire, who he had been dating since high school, only to find out she had moved on with another man and fellow classmate. He then started dating a fan of the band named June Clark, but this relationship was quite brief as Buddy still had feelings for Echo. On the 27th of November 1957, Buddy Holly and the Crickets released their first and only album while Buddy was alive called The Chirping Crickets. The album included a range of their current hits and new tracks and managed to reach number 5 on the UK album chart. The album included the catchy hit song Maybe Baby which took off in the US and UK where it went to number 4 in the UK and 18 in the US. In January 1958, Buddy Holly and the Crickets joined the America's Greatest Teenage Recording Stars Tour 
They made a second appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they went international and toured around Hawaii and in Australia, alongside Jerry Lee Lewis, Paul Anker, and Jody Sands as the Big Show Tour, before heading to the UK in March, where they performed an exhausting 50 shows in just 25 days. While touring with the Crickets, on the 20th of February 1958, Buddy Holly released his debut self-titled album, but unfortunately, it didn't fare too well on the commercial market. It included the single, I'm Going to Love You Too, but it failed to make the charts worldwide. However, the song Rave On became a hit in the UK, going to number 5. After this release, and touring the UK, Buddy Holly and the Crickets touched down back in the US, performing a further 41 shows, and Decca Records released an album called That'll Be The Day, featuring all of Holly's earlier recordings, and reached the number 5 position in the UK. Over the next few months, Buddy and the Crickets hired a new guitarist named Tommy Allsop, and released a number of tracks including Think It Over, which reached number 11 in the UK, and tracks such as Early In The Morning and It's So Easy. Plans were made for further albums, and many tracks were recorded over this period of time as the tours rolled on. The day before Holly recorded the track early in the morning, around the 19th of June 1958, he asked to go on a date with a girl named Maria Elena Santiago, who he had met during August of 1957. They first met when Maria worked as a receptionist for a music company called Peer Music, and Buddy Holly and the Crickets paid a visit to the building to meet with Maria's boss. Maria caught the eye of Buddy, and the two were reunited in June 1958. Maria was born in Puerto Rico, and had moved to New York City to live with her auntie after her mother died, and her father decided it would be best if she was given an opportunity in the promised land. When Buddy first asked Maria out, she replied that he must first ask her auntie for permission. So he did, and she said yes. Just five hours into their first date, Buddy and Maria were gelling perfectly, so Buddy handed Maria a rose and asked her for a hand in marriage. Maria was shocked, as it was just their first date, and said, but you haven't known me long enough. Maria agreed, and the two were set to be married very soon. Travis, who is Buddy's brother, believes that Buddy once told him, I haven't got time. Buddy was making the most of what time he had left, despite not yet knowing what fate may lay ahead, but perhaps he sensed that he didn't have long to go, a bit like Richie Valens. Buddy's brother Travis later wondered if Buddy felt like his life may be cut short, as he lived very fast and was always on the go, and grew up very quickly. Just two months after Buddy proposed, in Buddy's hometown of Lubbock, Buddy and Maria were married on the 15th of August, 1958, and the pair settled down for a month or so in Lubbock. Despite Buddy being over the moon, his manager Norman Petty strongly disapproved of their marriage and believed it would affect Buddy's fan base. This was due to the fact that Buddy's fan base was predominantly female and would give his fans no hope of dreaming of a life with Buddy knowing he was now married. This infuriated Buddy and he hated hiding Maria. Maria accompanied Buddy on tour but would be kept in the background and labelled as the band's secretary to hide their relationship. She would do the band's laundry, set up equipment, and handle concert revenue. Adding to Buddy's frustrations was his doubt over Petty's bookkeeping, and along with his Cricket's bandmates, they were concerned over how much Petty was making compared to them. As Maria and Buddy's romance blossomed, they would attend music concerts together around New York City, 
and Buddy would play piano at Maria's aunt's place and expressed an interest in learning to play the fingerstyle flamenco guitar. Buddy began exploring other avenues and dreams of his and wanted to collaborate on an album with Mahalia Jackson and Ray Charles. He expressed an interest in film and signed up for acting classes at Lee Strasberg's acting studio. He started drifting away from his cricket's bandmates and Buddy often wondered why they always wanted to step back and why they didn't chase the fame like he did. Buddy grew anxious and at times desperate to land his next number one record which was frustrating for him when things weren't falling into place. Buddy then entered a lengthy battle for royalties with Petty after Maria and his friends from the Everly Brothers encouraged him to, which resulted in Buddy not receiving any extra entitlements. He headed back to the studio recording True Love Ways, Moon Dreams, Raining in My Heart and It Doesn't Matter Anymore, all of which became hits after his death. Buddy began taking an interest in the New York music scene and production and helped record a couple of tracks for Lubok disc jockey Waylon Jennings. Then with Maria, he relocated to New York City to be closer to the action at apartment 4H of the Brevoort Apartments at 11th Fifth Avenue in Greenwich Village. Buddy also opened his own publishing label called Maria Music, named after his beautiful wife, and many believe this was the path Buddy most likely would have continued to take if he had have lived. During December 1958, Buddy finally ended his association with Norman Petty, and Buddy officially quit the crickets. As Petty still had all the rights to Buddy and the band's royalties, Buddy walked away with virtually nothing, and had no other choice but to return to music with a new band, deciding he needed to take whatever tour that came his way, as he needed the money for his family. Buddy and Maria ventured back to Lubbock to visit family and Waylon Jennings at his radio station, where Buddy recruited him to be a part of his new band as the bass player. Buddy also hired short-term crickets member Tommy Olsop on guitar and young drummer Carl Bunch. As Buddy and Maria were in need of money and were looking at starting a family, Maria encouraged Buddy to take up a tour opportunity in the middle of winter. Buddy was desperate to rejuvenate his career as it had been struggling since he had decided to take whatever gigs were available. A reluctant but determined Buddy and his new band then signed up to the Winter Dance Party Tour as there wasn't much else available at the time and journeyed to Milwaukee to begin the tour, putting them alongside Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. Little did Buddy or Maria know that Maria was almost a week pregnant and she would never see him again. This brings us to our third musician, the Big Bopper, who was 28 when he died in the crash. The Big Bopper was born Giles Perry, or J.P. Richardson Jr., in Sabine Pass, in Texas. His father, Giles Perry Richardson, was an oil field worker, and his mother was named Elise Richardson. J.P. Jr. was the oldest of his other two brothers, Cecil and James. JP was raised in a financially poor but humble, close and loving family that made the most of what they had. It was a tough upbringing for JP Jr. being from a poor family, but he was determined to make himself into a reputable family man that could provide for his family. At an early age, the family relocated to Beaumont, Texas, where JP Jr. grew up and graduated from Beaumont High School in 1947. It was during his high school days where he became known as a solid gridiron or American football player as a defensive linesman for the Royal Purples in jersey number 85. After graduating from high school, JP Jr. headed to Lamar College in Texas where he studied pre-law. 
While he was here, he became a member of the college band and choir. But JP's true passion was discovered when he became a part-time radio DJ at Beaumont, Texas for KTRM. Soon enough in 1949, JP Jr. was hired full-time by KTRM and decided to quit his pre-law degree. A couple years down the track, at just the age of 21, on the 18th of April 1952, JP Jr. married Adrienne Joy Ferreo Wenner, who was nicknamed Teetsy, and together they had a child named Deborah Joy during December 1953. In the new year of 1954, JP was awarded for his loyalty to KTRM and was given the role as supervisor of announcers. But in 1955, JP was drafted to serve in the military for the United States Army. JP Jr. completed his basic training at Fort Ord, California, and served for two years as a radar instructor, based in Fort Bliss, El Paso, Texas. In March 1957, JP Jr. was discharged as a corporal after serving in the Army and returned to his job as a DJ at KTRM. JP landed a number of time slots for his show, but one of the radio's sponsors suggested a new time slot segment for him. JP decided to call himself the Big Bopper after seeing college students performing the dance called the Bop. He was then slotted into the 3 to 6 p.m. time schedule, which was a big hit as it was one of the most popular time periods on radio. Working his way back up to the top once again, JP, now known as the Big Bopper, earned the role as station program director after all of his hard work and loyalty. Then in May 1957, the Big Bopper broke the record for the longest radio broadcast by 8 minutes, totaling 5 days, 2 hours and 8 minutes for a continuous broadcast. The broadcast included 1,821 songs being played, calls from listeners and the Big Bopper's commentary. He stopped to eat, use the restroom, and shower in between news sections only. In 1958, the Big Bopper would turn from DJ to music star when he decided he needed to make more cash for his growing family and was spotted for his songwriting talents, sound guitar skills, and vocal ability, as well as his witty sense of humour by talent scout, D Records owner, and manager Harold Pappy Daly from Houston, Texas. Daly worked for a number of record labels and had the Big Bopper signed to Mercury Records in 1958. His first single was titled Beggar to a King and was billed under the name J.P. Richardson, but the country-style song wasn't to be a hit. Daly then had J.P. record under the name The Big Bopper for his own label D Records. It was in these recording sessions with D Records that The Big Bopper laid down a catchy but humorous song titled Chantilly Lace. Mercury Records then decided to purchase the track from D Records and JP's first single as the Big Bopper was released in late June 1958. As the months rolled on, Chantilly Lace became a mega hit and peaked at number 6 on the US Hot 100 where it spent 22 weeks in the top 40 and became the third most played song on radio in 1958. The song became iconic for the time and was a refreshing type of song that saw the Big Bopper answering a telephone with his girlfriend on the other line as he flirts and lists the things that he loves about her and plans to go on a date with her. In a live performance of the track, the Big Bopper is credited for potentially creating the first ever music video for his performance. The Big Bopper wrote a number of originals that weren't released until after his death, such as White Lightning, which was later turned into a hit by country music artist George Jones, and the track Running Bear for Johnny Preston which JP wrote about his experiences growing up 
hearing the stories about the Sabine River and the Native American Indians and their tribes that called the area home. In November 1958, the Big Bopper earned his second hit with a sequel to Chantilly Lace called The Big Bopper's Wedding, where he pretends in the song to get cold feet and finds the attractive bridesmaids to be distracting. Both Chantilly Lace and The Big Bopper's Wedding were being circulated on Top 40 radio into January 1959, before his death. As his musical career was just taking off and JP was still working at KTRM, he was offered a chance to perform on the Winter Dance Party Tour alongside Richie Valens and Buddy Holly. And despite some hesitation, he took leave from KTRM to tour and bring in some cash for his wife, five-year-old daughter, and his unborn child, who was set to enter the world in just two to three months. With supporting his family on his mind and the need to promote his new album, the Big Bopper had no choice but to hit the road, despite hating being away from his beloved family. Although JP's wife didn't want him to go, she was excited for him to perform alongside some of music's rising stars. At the airport, JP Richardson, aka the Big Bopper, gave his daughter Deborah and his wife Adrienne a hug and kiss for the very last time as he boarded the plane to Milwaukee. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated as it means I can continue creating more content such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. On the 23rd of January 1959, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and Buddy Holly, with his newly formed The Crickets band, including Waylon Jennings, Tommy Olsop, and Carl Bunch, joined Dion and the Belmonts and Frankie Sardo on the road as they all came together in Milwaukee to begin the Winter Dance Party Tour that was set to run through the heart of the Midwest for three weeks. They set off in the middle of a freezing cold winter in a bus that was already beginning to have problems with the heating system. 
The Midwest was known at the time in the month of February for freezing over, and the back and forth zigzagging motion in which they travelled to various gigs frustrated the musicians and brought about much debate over their safety due to the extreme weather conditions. With organisers coming under fire for scheduling shows hundreds of miles apart in the winter snow. During the tour, the bus broke down numerous times with all musicians and members on board. They performed 10 shows over 10 days at ballrooms and theatres across Wisconsin, Minnesota and Iowa before reaching Clear Lake beginning at Milwaukee, followed by Kenosha, Mankato, Eau Claire, Montevideo, St. Paul, Davenport, Fort Dodge, Duluth and Green Bay and was set to perform a total of 24 shows with no days off. It felt about 40 below outside, according to Waylon Jennings, as they sat freezing inside the bus, with temperatures ranging from 20 below or minus 7 degrees Celsius to 36 below or 38 degrees Celsius. When the musicians travelled through Wisconsin, Tommy Olsop of the Crickets claims that at one particular moment, the bus started losing power and getting slower and slower, and the lights on the bus continually grew dimmer. All of a sudden the bus just stopped, with snow all around them, and ice on the road. The bus driver then told the musicians that the bus had frozen over. In order to keep warm, they all huddled together under blankets, drank shots of alcohol such as whiskey, lit a fire with newspapers in the aisle of the bus, and told stories to pass the time, while they waited for a replacement bus. Carl Bunch, who was Buddy Holly's drummer, even got frostbite on his feet from the cold weather, during a bus breakdown in Ironwood, Michigan. This was despite Carl remaining on the bus, suggesting just how cold it was. He was hospitalised due to this, and decided to leave the tour on the 1st of February, one day before the show at Clear Lake, leaving Buddy and the Crickets without their original drummer. Dion and the Belmont's drummer Carlo Menstrelejo filled in for Carl Bunch, with Richie Valens and Buddy Holly also filling in on drums for Dion and the Belmont's for a couple of gigs themselves. Buddy's band The Crickets regularly performed as the backing band for all the musicians on the tour, while Richie, Dion and Buddy all took turns drumming for one another, displaying the close camaraderie they had built together while on the tour, and how great they were at playing a number of instruments. Waist-deep snow continued to fall around them as they went on their way replacing the bus. As there were no days off, and a show every night, they were required to perform and get straight back on the bus to do it all again, sometimes travelling 10 to 12 hours between gigs along bumpy roads as the expressway had not yet been built in those times. They would get very little sleep while on the bus, and making matters worse, many of the musicians on the bus had come down with colds or the flu, including Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, who was especially struggling to pull himself together for their very next show. The Big Bopper was struggling to get rest on the bus and in between shows as he was a large man who found sleeping and even sitting on the old school bus seats to be uncomfortable. At every gig stop, the musicians were required to load and unload their own equipment and instruments before they could escape the snow and cold after a long trip as there was no roadie crew. In just 11 days, they had gone through around 5 buses as they kept breaking down and needing replacements. These buses were said to be reconditioned school buses that weren't even good enough for school kids. When the musicians were supposed to be enjoying a well-earned day off from the tour, they were instead booked in by organisers last minute for the show in Clear Lake. Buddy Holly was disgusted at the way they had all been treated. He described it as a hell tour and he was tired, cold and agitated and decided instead of taking the freezing cold bus again, 
that after the show he would instead hire a small charter plane, which included three seats for three passengers at $36 each, which is equivalent to $320 each in 2019, and one seat for the pilot of course, as he hoped to get himself and bandmates Waylon Jennings and Tommy Olsop to the next gig, avoiding any roadblocks they could have ran into by travelling on the bus. But he also wanted to get a head start and arrive at their next destination early to get some rest and some washing done as they had all been wearing the same stage outfits day after day and they started to smell. Frustrated with the bus, he planned to book a charter flight after the show. On the 2nd of February 1959, which was the 11th night of the Winter Dance Party tour, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens and Buddy Holly arrived in Clear Lake, Iowa, just west of Mason City to perform at the Surf Ballroom, where they had already driven for an exhausting 350 miles or 560 kilometres from Green Bay the night before. For attendees that night that were mainly screaming teenagers, it was the biggest concert the small country town had ever witnessed in the area, with some of the biggest and brightest rising stars in the music industry at the time. Despite the short notice, the show was a sellout with tickets selling fast as 1,500 fans eagerly awaited their arrival, lined up around the block, waiting to get in. The show in Clear Lake was a last-minute booking and was open to anyone in the area with the surf ballroom manager, Carol Anderson, jumping at the opportunity. When the stars of the Winter Dance Tour emerged, they all looked run down and sick. Almost everyone had frostbite and Big Bopper was now running a fever and sweating profusely. Despite this, they all soldiered on and were determined to give the fans exactly what they came for a killer show. In the last few hours of Buddy, Richie and JP's lives, many of the performers headed across to the restaurant for a bite to eat before the show began. As fans came racing into the ballroom, filling the floor and cheering and screaming as the first act of the night readied themselves. Dion and the Belmonts opened the show, followed by the Big Bopper at 8pm, performing the crowd favourite Chantilly Lace, with his comical telephone routine having the crowd in stitches and cheering as JP pushed through the fever. The Big Bopper was then followed by Richie Valens, whose rendition of Donna was a huge hit as he stole the hearts of every woman in the ballroom. Richie was stealing the show with his incredible live performing ability and a high energy performance of La Bamba. Described as shy backstage, but wild on stage by Waylon Jennings, Richie's performance was one of his best to date, and the future sure looked bright for the 17-year-old. Buddy performed last and was equally as great, performing a mixture of hits, as well as slower and fast-paced songs. The show went late into the night as they all performed two sets each, concluding at 12pm. Surf ballroom manager Carol Anderson then phoned Hubert Jerry Dwyer, the owner of the playing charter company Dwyer Flying Service, for Buddy Holly and his bandmates. Buddy, Waylon and Tommy began rushing to catch their plane when the Big Bopper approached Waylon Jennings and asked if he wanted to swap as he was feeling incredibly ill and couldn't stand to think about 365 miles or so on that freezing cold bus between Clear Lake, Iowa and Moorhead, Minnesota, which had now been scheduled as their next gig. The scheduling for this show would see them frustratingly go back the way they came through two towns they had already passed through and then the day after they would head back to Iowa again to Seox City for a gig showing the neglect and stupidity of the performance bookings. Waylon agreed to the Big Bopper's request and said if it's alright with Buddy then it's alright with me. 
The truth was, Buddy wasn't overly pleased about it and jokingly but sarcastically told Waylon, I hope your old bus freezes up. Waylon replied to Buddy, saying, Well, I hope your old plane crashes. A throwaway comment that would later come back to haunt Waylon for the rest of his life and lead him to believe he caused the crash for many years to come. With now Buddy Holly, Tommy Allsop, and the Big Bopper set to board the plane, they jumped into the car to head to the airport, when Buddy asked Tommy to check that they had all of their equipment, including everyone's laundry, as they had agreed to wash everybody's clothes for them. This simple moment would change everything. Tommy agreed to return to the dressing room for one last check to see if they didn't forget anything, when he bumped into Richie Valens. Richie at the time was busy signing his last few autographs for the night for his fans, but said to Tommy, are you going to let me fly, guy? Richie had been asking Tommy all night if he wanted to trade places, as Richie felt quite sick himself, and like the big bopper, he didn't want to travel on that bus and travel through the winter cold. Tommy decided to flip a coin to see who would get the seat on the plane and for Richie to call it. Richie called heads, and just like that, Richie won himself a spot on the plane to face his destiny. It was strange that Richie had decided he wanted to board the plane considering his strong fear of flying, especially in small aircrafts like a charter plane, but the conditions on the bus were so bad that it forced his hand. Tommy returned to the vehicle and informed Buddy that he wouldn't be flying anymore as he lost a coin toss to Richie. Buddy, however, seemed fine with that as Richie jumped in. In another interview with Dion DeMucky, of Dion and the Belmonts, he believes that he too almost took the plane and was asked before Tommy and Waylon if he wanted a ride. He believes that the price was also too steep for him as $36 at the time was the same as his parents' rent, which caused a lot of arguments between them. So to Dion, it wasn't worth it and he rejected the offer. That night, a freezing cold northeast wind blew as Richie Valens, Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper were driven to their charter plane at the Mason City Airport in Iowa, by surf ballroom manager, Carol Anderson. There to greet them were a number of adoring fans that followed the stars there and their 21-year-old pilot, Roger Peterson, who was a young married man who proclaimed to have built his life around flying. The charter plane from Dwyer Flying Service was a 1947 single-engine VTAL Beechcraft 35 Bonanza, and due to its registration number, it was referred to as flight N3794N. Just past midnight, on Tuesday, February the 3rd, 1959, Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens boarded the plane with their luggage and the dirty laundry. Buddy sat in the front with the pilot Roger Peterson, while the Big Bopper and Richie Valens jumped into the back two seats. They shook hands and took off into the cold and dark winter sky at almost one in the morning. That night there was a strong snowstorm and the weather bureau issued two hazard and safety warnings to those flying on the route, but the pilot didn't receive any information. Winds were blowing up to 48 kilometers an hour with low visibility of just 10 kilometers in front of them. Surf ballroom manager Carol Anderson said that he jumped back in the car as the plane took off into the sky, saying it was the perfect takeoff before looking back in his review mirror and seeing the plane's tail lights slowly going down and then disappearing. They were expected to land at Fargo Hector Airport in North Dakota, located near Moorhead in the early hours of the morning, and were then set to be picked up in Moorhead, but the plane never arrived. In fact, it didn't make it very far at all. 
That morning, they were penciled in for a radio performance at KFGO Radio with DJ Charlie Boone, but they never showed up. Also on the lookout that evening at Mason City Airport was Hubert Jerry Dwyer of Dwyer Flying Services. Dwyer believes that at 12.55am, the plane took off with a normal takeoff with no abnormalities and watched the plane ascend to 800 feet as it took a left around the airport. For most of the plane's flight, he could see the tail light before witnessing the plane veer to the left once again, facing the northwesterly winds. In the distance, he could see the plane tail light very slowly losing altitude and descending until he couldn't see it any longer. Dwyer attempted numerous times to communicate with Peterson at 1am but wasn't getting any response. As time went on, later at around 9.35 in the morning, Dwyer decided to head out in another plane and retrace Peterson's route to ensure nothing horrible had occurred. Dwyer had travelled only 6 miles or 10 kilometres northwest from the airport when he discovered a wreckage laying in a cornfield. Dwyer then quickly called the sheriff's office and Deputy Bill McGill was sent to investigate. He arrived at the cornfield farm property owned by Albert Jewell to find a scene of pure horror. The small plane was found to have made impact with the ground at a high speed of 170 miles per hour or 270 kilometres an hour and descended in a slightly to the right and nose first direction. The tip of the right wing made first contact with the ground, sending the aircraft into a spinning and cartwheeling motion for 550 feet or 160 metres before coming to a halt on a neighbouring barbed wire fence at the edge of Albert Jewell's property. The impact of the crash would have been made even more destructive due to the field being frozen over, but not that that would have saved anybody. In the process, Richie Valens and Buddy Holly were ejected out of their seats and the fuselage and most likely tumbled with the wreckage and landed nearby just five metres away from where their plane ended up, halting against the barbed wire fence in a clearing. The plane was an unrecognisable mangled mess and inside was the entangled body of the pilot, Roger Peterson. J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper, was also ejected from his seat and the fuselage and was found the furthest away at around 20 to 30 metres from the wreckage, with his body flying over the fence into a neighbouring cornfield owned by Albert Jewell's neighbour, Oscar Moffat. Carol Anderson was then required to come down to the crash site to identify the bodies, and it was confirmed Richie Valens, aged just 17, Buddy Holly, aged 22, J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper, aged 28, and pilot Roger Peterson, aged 21, were all identified and confirmed as deceased. County Coroner Ralph Smiley concluded that Richie, Buddy and J.P. were all ruled dead on impact, caused by blunt or gross trauma to the brain, while the pilot was also ruled dead on impact and caused by brain damage. All four men also had significant chest and head injuries. The news of the accident would cause much heartache and change lives and music as we know it forever. Disgracefully, the organisers of the Winter Dance Party Tour forced the remaining members of the tour to carry on and continue performing. This included Waylon Jennings stepping into the vocal role of Buddy Holly for the majority of the final shows, as well as 15-year-old teen prodigy Bobby V performing on vocals the evening after their death at Moorhead. This just displayed how little regard the organisers placed on the musicians' welfare and cared more about raking in the money. 
Tommy Allsop and Waylon Jennings continued on, but it was extremely difficult and they desperately wanted out of the tour. The first to break the news was local radio DJ Bob Hale, who had also attended the surf ballroom gig the night before. When he first announced the story on the news bulletin, no names had been identified yet, but when he received a phone call straight after from Carol Anderson, he informed him that Richie, Buddy and JP had all passed away. News then quickly spread around the world as fans went into mourning. Horrific and sad images emerged, displaying the wreckage and their bodies lying beside the wreck. But what was most traumatising of all, most of the three stars' loved ones found out through watching the breaking news on TV, instead of being told in person before the news broke. Buddy Holly's mother collapsed when hearing of the news, and Buddy had only been married to his wife Maria for six months, and now she was a widow with a baby on the way. Maria obviously took Buddy's death hard, and due to psychological stress-related trauma, she sadly lost their baby and suffered a miscarriage, reportedly the day after his death. Buddy's body was brought back to his hometown of Leboc, where he was laid to rest on the 7th of February, 1959. A service was held at Tabernacle Baptist Church in Leboc, with pallbearers including former bandmates and Tommy Olsop while the service was officiated by the exact same man who wed Buddy and Maria just six months earlier. Missing from the funeral, however, was Waylon Jennings, who was forced to stay on the Winter Dance Party tour. Buddy's headstone included the correct spelling of his surname and a replica carving of his Fender Stratocaster guitar. Many people laid down replica black glasses, similar to Buddy's, which is a trend that people still do to this day. Too traumatised by Buddy's death, Maria decided against attending Buddy's funeral and has never visited his actual resting place to this very day. When speaking to the Avalanche Journal, she said, quote, In a way, I blame myself. I was not feeling well when he left. I was two weeks pregnant and I wanted Buddy to stay with me, but he had scheduled that tour. It was the only time I wasn't with him and I blame myself because I know that if I had only gone along, but he never would have gotten onto that aeroplane. Due to the circumstances around Maria finding out about Buddy's death through the television reports, a new set of guidelines was then introduced that recommended that family are always told before the media, but of course these rules weren't always followed. The death of Buddy and Richie especially hit hard with friend and fellow American musician Eddie Cochran, who knew the two very well. After their death, Cochrane's friends and family feared for his own life as he spiralled into a depression. Eddie was quite shaken up about it all, and like Richie Valens often experienced, Eddie began having similar nightmares and even had premonitions of himself that he was going to die young, just like his friends, as he expressed these thoughts to those close to him. The following year on the 16th of April, 1960, while Eddie was touring in England, his premonition became a reality when he was involved in a fatal car accident around midnight involving the taxi he was travelling in, which ultimately killed him after paramedics failed to revive him in the hours leading into the following day. The taxi driver had been speeding and lost control of the vehicle and had crashed into a concrete lamppost. Also in the car was Eddie's touring manager, fellow musician Gene Vincent, and Eddie's fiancée Sharon Sheely. On impact, Eddie acted instinctively and dived on top of his fiancée attempting to shield her. The impact of the crash forced the left rear passenger door to open and Eddie went flying out and sustained a massive traumatic brain injury caused by blunt force trauma, exactly the type of injury that had killed Richie, Buddy and JP. 
He was pronounced dead at 4 in the morning after failing to regain consciousness and was just 28 years old. Through Eddie's actions, however, he managed to save his fiancée and all passengers in the vehicle lived to tell the tale, despite sustaining serious injuries. The 19-year-old driver was convicted and stripped of his licence for a number of years. An investigation into the crash involving Buddy, Richie and the Big Bopper was then carried out by the Civil Aeronautics Board, who focused on the role of the 21-year-old pilot, Roger Peterson. While an out-and-out reason for why the plane went down wasn't determined, it was ruled that Peterson was too inexperienced to fly in those types of conditions, and fault was placed on him for taking those risks. This was often disputed, however, by many in the field who believe any experienced pilot that night would have struggled to get out of that situation and that Peterson had not received sufficient warnings. It was discovered that Peterson had four years flying experience, one of which was with Dwyer Flight Services, and he had clocked up around 711 flying hours, with 128 of those being in a Bonanza aircraft, the same as the one that went down. Peterson was in the middle of completing a course on flying in weather conditions and hadn't yet completed the course that would have qualified him to fly on nights like this. This qualification was also required due to the need to operate advanced instruments on the plane's console. Another theory suggests that perhaps due to the low visibility, Peterson thought he was still ascending rather than descending as snowstorms can cause pilots to become confused and disorientated on which way is up. Peterson was often used as a scapegoat and held responsible for the crash by some fans, but he was really just a victim himself, and perhaps there should have been more of an investigation into the person who put the inexperienced pilot into the air during these conditions. Roger Peterson was laid to rest in his hometown of Buena Vista in Storm Lake, Iowa. Much later in 2015, a retired pilot named LJ Kuhn attempted to reopen the case, claiming that the conclusion of the investigation was incorrect, and claimed that something was wrong with the right rotavator, the fuel system, or weight distribution with passengers. He claimed Peterson may have attempted to land the plane, but his request to reopen was denied and rejected. A number of songs were written in Buddy, Richie and Big Bopper's memory, including the 1959 track Three Stars, which Tommy D wrote and was vocalised by Eddie Cochran, before he too passed away. Mike Berry wrote Tribute to Buddy Holly, which became a top 30 hit in the UK, only to be removed from radio by BBC for being too depressing. But the most successful of all was in 1971 with Don McLean and American Pie, which brought about the catchphrase for the incident called The Day the Music Died, as he mentions it in the lyrics, and it symbolises for him the day that music lost its innocence when they died. Don McLean was a huge fan of Buddy Holly and was proud to pay tribute to him and have his story reach number one in four countries including Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the US and number two in the UK, selling over two million copies of the single. The lyrics tell the story of the three musicians and especially Buddy as he sings, A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile and I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver, with every paper I'd deliver. Bad news on the doorstep, I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried, when I read about his widowed bride. Something touched me deep inside, the day the music died. The lyrics in this verse refer to how Buddy's music brought happiness to people's lives, and the sad thought of his wife losing her husband 
While Don recalls that cold winter during February in 1959, there was a major factor in their death. Over time, Buddy Holly's wife Maria attempted to move on with her life and ended up having three children to her second husband, but they later divorced. She has since become a grandmother, living in Dallas, Texas, and has dedicated much of her life to keeping Buddy's legacy alive. In 2008, she revisited their old apartment they had together, and also Washington Square Park, where Buddy would play his guitar. However, Maria has still not been to his gravesite. In 2010, Maria co-founded the charity the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation. Their aim is to keep Buddy's legacy alive and providing music education such as songwriting, production, performance, orchestration and arrangement to people of all backgrounds regardless of wealth, ethnicity or their educational limitations. Buddy's legacy was also preserved through the release of his previously unreleased music which managed to also chart and through films such as The Buddy Holly Story and The Buddy Holly Center in Lubbock where his famous glasses are now on display. When the crash occurred in 1959, the glasses were nowhere to be found, only to turn up in 1980 in a courthouse storage area in Cerro Gordo County. Buddy's glasses had been handed in in 1959 to police when the snow melted and they were discovered. But along the way, they got lost only to turn back up again. They were then awarded to Maria after a battle with Buddy's parents over them as she donated them to the Buddy Holly Center. Also found along with the glasses was a watch belonging to the Big Bopper, as well as a lighter and two pairs of dice. Many items were lost and it was reported that parts of the plane were found as far as 150 metres away. In 1980, a statue was erected of Buddy Holly strumming his Fender Stratocaster in his honour in his hometown of Lubbock, as well as a number of streets and avenues named after him. Buddy's music remains ever popular and are considered all-time classics including Peggy Sue, which in pop culture today even made it to number 194 on the 2004 Rolling Stone magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. It is ranked number 186 on the Greatest Songs of All Time by acclaimed music and fifth best song from 1957. It made the top 100 on the National Public Radio's 100 Most Important American Musical Works of the 20th Century. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the Songs That Shaped Rock and Roll list. Buddy Holly's That'll Be The Day made it to number 39 on the Rolling Stone magazine's Top 500 Songs of All Time list, while they also named Buddy Holly the 13th greatest artist of all time. All Music summed him up perfectly stating that, quote, the single most influential creative force in early rock and roll. This statement is most definitely true as he influenced musicians as big as the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, The Clash, Nirvana, The Grateful Dead, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, The Beatles, Elton John and of course Don McLean. Most of these artists were raised on his music, saw him in concert or bought his albums. The Beatles were even inspired to give themselves that name after being inspired by Buddy's band name, The Crickets. Buddy has now been recognised as a pioneer in rock and roll music and the one that got the ball rolling. In 1986, Buddy was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and was among the first class to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where he was called an innovator and, quote, made a major and lasting impact on popular music. Buddy has also been credited for being the first to utilise two guitars in a band instead of just the one, and has set the standard for having four-piece bands in music today, including a drummer, 
two guitarists, one of which is the lead singer, and a bass player. Buddy was also recognised for his innovative methods, with double tracking, his hiccup stuttering style vocals that switch between his normal voice and falsetto, his percussionist down strumming guitar style, the use of reverb, and for writing his own material. Buddy has since been awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award in 1997 for his contribution to the arts. He was inducted into the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000. In 2011, a plaza was named after Buddy and his wife Maria. And that same year, for what would have been his 75th birthday, he earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 2008, it was believed that almost all of Buddy Holly's masters were burned in a fire at Hollywood's Universal Studios, but Chad Kassam of Analog Productions believes they aren't the only copies. Most recently in 2017, $150 million were raised to build the Buddy Holly Hall of Fame Performing Arts and Sciences in Le Boc. If Buddy Holly never boarded that plane, perhaps today Buddy Holly would have been celebrating his 84th birthday, and in regards to Buddy's family, Maria is still alive today, and is currently 88 years old. Buddy's father Lawrence O'Dell Holly passed away aged 85 in 1985. His mother Ella Pauline Drake Holly passed away in 1990, aged 88. Buddy's sister Patricia died aged 79 in 2008. His brother Travis Holly died in 2016, aged 89, while his eldest brother Larry Holly is now 95 and still alive today. For Buddy's bandmates Waylon Jennings and Tommy Olsop, their destiny including having long-running careers as musicians. Buddy's bandmates went on to have successful careers, but always had a sense of guilt that they were able to continue on without him. Waylon Jennings, who was also 22 at the time of Buddy's death, died in 2009, age 64, after a long and successful career as a country music artist, releasing 45 studio albums, including seven number one albums as a solo artist, and one with Willie Nelson, who he produced five albums with. Excessive cocaine, drug use, and diabetes caught up with him in the end. Tommy Olsop, whose fate was determined by the flip of a coin, was 26 when Buddy Holly died, and he went on to continue playing country music, playing in local bands and performing recording studio session work for other artists. But his career, however, didn't take off to the same extent as Waylon. In 1979, he opened up his own saloon called Tommy's Heads Up Saloon as a reference to his famous coin toss with Richie Valens. Tommy sadly passed away in 2017, aged 85. Drummer Carl Bunch, who was only 19 when Holly died, recovered from his frostbite, but his career didn't go much further. He died in 2011, aged 72. Dion and the Belmonts continued to make music, but their success wore away by the late 60s. Their lead singer Dion DiMucci broke away and had a semi-successful solo career. He is 81 years old today. Bobby V, who filled in for Holly after his death, took advantage of the situation, with the 15-year-old earning himself a number one hit in 1961 with Take Good Care of My Baby and going on to have a solid career. Richie Valens was laid to rest at San Fernando Mission Cemetery in Mission Hills, Los Angeles, California. Richie's family were in disbelief when they too witnessed the TV reports confirming his death before even receiving a phone call. Richie's family say that his mother Concepcion and sister Connie never came to terms with his death. In 1987, on the set of the Richie Valens film called La Bamba, featuring actor Lou Diamond Phillips as Richie, Richie's mother Concepcion approached the actor during the plane scene, 
as it brought back a trauma she had never really faced before, and began shaking Lou, saying why did you get on that plane repeatedly. Richie's mother Concepcion died during October 1987, just months after the film's release, at the age of 72. She was laid to rest beside her son Richie in the same cemetery in LA. Richie Valen's legacy was carried on through musicians who were influenced by him, being the first ever Hispanic or Chicano rock star. Musicians such as Jimi Hendrix, Carlos Santana, Los Lobos and Enrique Iglesias all were inspired by Richie and the way that he broke into the mainstream, being from a differing background to what America usually accepted. Los Lobos covered Richie's song La Bamba in 1987 for his biofilm and did the song justice, sending it straight to number one in 11 countries, including Australia, Canada, across Europe, New Zealand, the US and UK, bringing a Spanish song to the mainstream. Richie will be remembered for fusing Latino music with rock, influencing a new generation of musicians, looking to imitate and build on his legacy. La Bamba was even selected by the US Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry as culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. Led Zeppelin paid tribute to Valens with their song Boogie with Stew being a reference to Valens' song Ooh My Head. In 1989, a man named Ken Paquet erected a stainless steel tribute to the three fallen stars at the site of the crash. It included three discs representing records with each of the three stars' names that sits beside a statue guitar and cross that also reads the three stars' names. In 1990, Richie was also honoured with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. A large granite headstone was also erected outside the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, in June 1988, displaying all three names of the stars, and marked the first time that members of all three families, and pilot Roger Peterson's, had come together. Concerts are held every now and then in honour of the fallen stars, including a 50th anniversary performance in 2009, and fans have gathered there on the anniversary since 1979. In Richie's hometown of Paxton Park, Pacoma, the town has been filled with painted murals for Richie, while the park in Pacoma was renamed Valens Park in his honour, as well as part of the San Fernando Valley Freeway. In 2001, Richie Valens was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, joining Buddy Holly. While Richie's mother was laid to rest in 1987, his brother Bob joined him much later in 2018 at the age of 81. Richie's other siblings, Connie, Irma and Mario, are still alive today. Richie's manager, Bob Keane, who was like a father figure to him, passed away in 2009, age 87. Had Richie lived on, he would most likely have become much, much bigger, as he was just 17 years old. He had so much potential, and if he survived that day, he would have been around 80 years old today. But there is one member of the three stars that has often been forgotten, and that is none other than J.P. Richardson, aka The Big Bopper. The Big Bopper is still awaiting his entry into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and surely he deserves his place by now. The Big Bopper was laid to rest in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Beaumont, Texas. The legacy of the man that brought us White Lightning and Chantilly Lace with his comedic style was kept alive through his son J. Perry Richardson, who despite never meeting his father, is a spitting image of him. Jay was born around three months after his father's death, and over his lifetime gathered as much info on what his father was like as possible. In order to make his father proud, he followed in his father's footsteps and took to the road as a big bopper impersonator. 
Together with a Buddy Holly and Richie Valens lookalike, he took the same winter dance party tour and attempted to help his father's legacy live on forever, performing on the very same stages as his father. Jay married his wife Patty and had three children. In 2007, after internet rumours ran rampant suggesting that the Big Bopper was finished off with a gun or that Buddy Holly had something to do with it as he was said to have been carrying a pistol, which suggested that it either caused the crash or someone used it to shoot JP, which opened up a new can of worms. It drove Jay to the point of having his father dug up to check his remains for bullet wounds. Surprisingly, he was in great recognisable condition, and with Jay present, the autopsy report suggested that there was no foul play. Jay had his father buried once again in a brand new casket, made by the same company from 1959, and had him placed next to his wife Adrienne, who had passed away in 2004, aged 67. Things got harder for Jay when his sister and the Big Bopper's daughter, Deborah, died in 2010, aged 57. Unfortunately, however, in 2013, Jay Perry Richardson himself passed away aged 54. It's believed that the Big Bopper was planning on building his very own studio and was going to start his own radio station. He had also written at least 20 new songs that he had also planned on releasing at the time of his death. Despite not making the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just yet, or getting his own star in Hollywood, he did however earn an entry into the Rockabilly and Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And had he lived on, he would have been 90 years old today. Although Richie Valens, Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper's fates were met with a horrific and tragic end, their legacy and story lives on almost 60 years later, and is to this day one of the most tragic and biggest moments in music history. The Big Bopper will be remembered for his comical style music that he fused with country and rock and roll, especially for his big hit Chantilly Lace, and as a respected family man and radio host. Richie Valens, who was the youngest of the three, will be remembered for his genuine down-to-earth qualities and charming star persona, who won over the ladies and the American public, becoming the first Hispanic and Chicano musician to break into the mainstream, with hits like Donna, Come On Let's Go, La Bamba, and Ooh My Head. Buddy Holly, on the other hand, will remain a pioneer of rock and roll, remembered for his iconic glasses and his hits like Peggy Sue, That'll Be The Day, Oh Boy, and True Love Ways, just to name a few, all of which inspired legendary acts to take what Buddy had created and evolve rock music and even pop music as we know it today. In their short careers and lives, they still achieved so much. Richie bought a home for his mother, ticking off a lifelong dream to repay for her sacrifices, Buddy married the woman of his dreams, and the Big Bopper married and brought life into the world. But one can only imagine what impact they would have had on the music industry today had they not boarded that plane or gone on that dreaded winter tour. What more could they have achieved? How many more hits would they have? And what would their lives have looked like if they continued to live them? One thing is certain, however, and that is Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper, are immortalised as true legends and pioneers of rock and roll music, and their story will be told for many more generations to come. Perhaps it wasn't the day that music died, but the day true rock and roll music was born. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcasts or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com.
If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive new episodes direct to you when they become available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then feel free to head to Patreon, where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. Once again, thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.